Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 11th of November 2019 and this is episode 136. On this week's podcast, Dr Rachel Duffett, Research Officer at the Department of Sociology at the University of Essex, talks about her recent book, Stomach for Fighting, that looks at the food and the British Tommy during the Great War. I spoke to Rachel from her home in Essex. Rachel, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and in particular food and the frontline soldier? Well, it wasn't my um, first area of interest, Tom. I was initially interested in the emotional responses of soldiers to warfare. I'd grown up like most um, English school children, reading Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon in my English literature classes. And I wanted to find out how other, work, other soldiers wrote about um, their experiences, and in particular working class soldiers, uh, rankers, not, not the officer class. Um, when I went to look in the archive, in fact, they don't write very much about emotions, and I didn't expect them to be as reflexive and as literate as the great war poets, but I did expect to find more about um, emotional responses to the war. But what I did find a huge quantity of was references to food. So I started off really coming at food not from a logistical, uh, military, or nutritional, uh, physiological um, angle. I came at it more from an emotional, um, social and cultural experience of the First World War. So I'm not a food historian per se. I'm not a military historian in terms of the kind of great strategies. I'm a social and cultural historian who's very interested in how ordinary people experience the horrors uh, of war. Can you start by telling us about the diet of the frontline Tommy in the trenches? Well, for a start, the diet of the frontline Tommy was superior to Tommy's in other parts of the British Army, serving at the same time. When the war starts in um, August 1914, all British soldiers got the same diet. And that's around just under 4,200 calories a day, which is not terribly dissimilar to what the British Army gives its soldiers now. So in calorific terms, the British Army had a good grip on what was really needed um, you know, for an active uh, soldier. The issue, of course, was that providing that amount of food for everybody was proving hugely expensive. So pretty rapidly, the British Army developed a system whereby the best food was preserved for those at the front. So frontline soldiers carry on getting their 4,200 calories a day, but those in reserve lines and uh, then um, in the camps back home got uh, fewer and fewer uh, uh, calories. In fact, often, you know, over 1,000 calories difference in their diet and the frontline soldiers. But if you're in the front line in the First World War, you could expect uh, about a pound of meat and a pound of bread a day. You could also expect, according to the ration scales anyway, some bacon, that's four ounces of bacon a day, vegetables over half a pound, three ounces of sugar, three ounces of jam, half an ounce of tea, uh, cheese, condensed milk, all sorts of good things. But that, of course, Tom, is the ration scale produced by the British Army. There's often a huge gap between what the British Army wants to feed its soldiers and what is actually received by them. And did soldiers ever starve in the trenches? I don't 
think they ever starved, or not that I'm aware. There were certainly outbreaks of scurvy in Mesopotamia, mainly amongst the Indian army. But, uh, there, you know, there are health issues, I think, related to uh, frontline or soldiers' diet. But starvation isn't an issue. People have to be, you know, very determined indeed to starve in the face of food supplies. And there are occurrences uh, noted in the history, not in the First World War that I'm aware of, but I think soldiers often went hungry because they really didn't appreciate the diet that they was they were offered. You know, it, it was very high in fat, cans of lots of cans of uh, you know tin meat. The carbohydrate aspect of it was generally biscuit rather than fresh bread, um, and biscuit was not popular with the British soldiers. You've probably seen the Bruce Bairns father cartoons of you know the old Bill put another biscuit on the fire. You know, it wants mending. So. People like Ben's father, people like Robert Graves refer to it as kindling. You know, it's really hard, tough stuff. So often soldiers would reject the food that they were offered by the army, but I'm not aware of any actually starving, no. You've touched on the nutritional value of this diet in terms of calorific um, content. Yeah. Was there any other side effects of this type of diet on a regular day-in, day-out basis? Well, I think the main issue, I, I would argue, is that there was a... a deficiency of ascorbic acid or vitamin C. Now, you know, everyone at this time was aware of the need for vitamin C, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, people have been aware of that in the Navy and its limes. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon knowledge. But what people weren't aware of was what we would regard now as being a kind of pre-full deficiency stage. So people aren't actually in the throes of you know, complete vitamin C deficiency, but they are showing medical signs that indicate a shortage of vitamin C. And things like, for example, you know, the number of soldiers that complain about their gums bleeding, you know, and British dentistry, certainly for the British working classes, was not something to write home about. So a lot of men have very bad teeth anyway. But there are an awful lot of stories of gums that bleed, of sores that don't heal, you know, not through gangrenous reasons, but I think probably because, you know, the body is not in um, its most healthy um, condition. I'm not saying it would have been before the war for, for many of these men, but certainly a, a shortage of vitamin C. And if we look at the diet in the current British Army and our current understanding of nutrition, this very high protein is, is not is not the easiest thing to digest, shall we say. So, you know, soldiers are getting maybe, you know, they're eating a couple of tins of tinned meat a day. They're ignoring the carbohydrate because they don't want to, or they can't physically perhaps eat the biscuits. So what happens is, fat is being hard to digest. The digestive process starts to slow down. So the men write a lot about constipation and the famous number nine pill, which is often all you would ever get out of a medical officer. But if they haven't got constipation, of course, they, you know, they may well be suffering from dysentery as a result of the very contaminated and dirty water that many of them drank. I mean, water was a real issue because it's so heavy. So carrying water up the front line, you know, was quite a, a, a difficult uh, procedure, especially in the height of summer when people, you know, are thirsty. And, of course, you know, corned beef and things like that are very, very salty, and they make people very thirsty. So men tended to drink from other sources, which could cause, you know, more digestive problems than it, than it really solved. So it's a kind of fluctuation, really, of, of um, poor functioning digestive system. How did the average soldier regard his diet in the trenches? 
hard, isn't it? Because I think the thing I would say about food is is that it is it's a hugely emotional subject. You know, the army today recognises it to a degree. I'm not sure the British Army did it 100 years ago, but people do not eat by calories alone. You know, they, it, there are all sorts of other things involved in eating. So if a soldier's, you know, having a bad day, then whatever you give them uh, to eat is probably not going to please them. So I suppose the point I'm trying to make is, is that there's lots of griping, there's lots of complaining about the food. But, um, you know, I wonder if that's a kind of a transference of, of sometimes of bigger concerns I think one of the issues for the soldiers was was that if they'd been delivered what the ration scale specified, they wouldn't have been complaining so much. But they get very upset by, um, you know, substitutions to the ration. Um, for example, there's um, a Walter Holyfield who served with one of the Essex, uh, with the Essex Regiment, and he he was offered tripe for breakfast, which he found wholly unacceptable. The British government brought up Norway's sardine um, exports, herring exports, early on in the wars, because normally the German um, nation would have bought them. So as a kind of, you know, intervention in the food wars of the First World War, the British government bought them all up, which meant that a lot of soldiers were offered tin sardines for breakfast, which, again, they did not, you know, they didn't enjoy. It's odd, really, isn't it? Because a lot of people eat kippers, or in Britain used to eat kippers. But, um, you know, it's often the substitutions that that irritated soldiers. And even some of the officers comment on this. You know, Captain J.C. Dunn comments on that, you know, fish for breakfast does seem rather odd. So a lot of the disappointment around food would be that men would be holding what they received up to the standard of what they'd been promised and they'd find it lacking. And so that brings us on to the next issue of what was the sort of value of food in terms of social, emotional and psychological uh, value to the soldiers? I, I think it's huge. And I think, you know, there's a fundamental thing here, isn't there? But, you know, these men at the beginning of the war have volunteered their lives in the service of the nation, 1916 on their conscripted, but you know, these are men who are potentially going to lose their lives, and the very least they expect is a duty of care from the army to feed them properly. So, you know, there are all sorts of issues about justice and fairness and caring and, you know, the, the kind of contract that men have entered into with the army. So, you know, food is a site uh, for a lot of the concerns that men feel um, you know, about other injustices in the army. For example, rank. Uh, there's a wonderful story in Hodges' uh, Men of 18 in 1918 where he says we had a, you know, a colonel appeared in the front line, first time ever, um, which all, obviously all rankers always say. Didn't stop long. He said, I've got to go. Must go, lads. I've got roast pork for dinner tonight. And Hodges leaves it at that. But, you know, everything is in that different meal as he and his pals share their tin of bully beef and their tin of biscuits. The fact that officers, you know, made their own messing arrangements in general and ate um, in, you know, better than the men was, I think, you know, a way in which injustices, particularly after the war, are expressed in the memoirs of those soldiers. So food is a site of justice, um, you know, as well as emotional comfort. You know, parcels from from home were hugely important. It's a way, isn't it, of, of bridging the gap. A letter's one thing, but if you're a kind of working class, you know, vaguely literate, as most of the men were, and their families uh, too, but, you know, what are you going to write in a letter? What can you write in a letter that conveys, you know, for example, a mother's love? 
it's very hard to write those things well and very hard to write them without you know creating more fear and anxiety so food parcels from home home cooked food food prepared in particular by mothers was very much prized by the soldiers you know it was a way of you know strengthening those bonds um, uh, you know across the miles uh, and a way of being reminded of the love and care that their families held for them and also sharing with their pals um, you know, it was very much part of the ranker's ethos that if anyone got a parcel, it was shared with his small group of friends. Well, not always that small, often up to a dozen or so. But, uh, of course, you know, that made sure that if you didn't get a parcel, but your mate did, you did get some, um, you know, special treats that day. Although not all soldiers were keen. There's a wonderful collection in the Ipswich Records Office of the Stouffer Brothers. And George writes to his sister and says, oh, you know, don't send me any sweets because they all want them. He says, send me money instead, and then he can buy himself stuff secretly, you know. But uh, sharing in the main is something that rank-and-file soldiers are, are very strong on. And you talked about sort of uh, connections with home, which brings me to the next question, mm -hmm. which is how did the frontline soldiers' diet in the trenches differ from their civilian experience at home? Um, obviously, the majority of the army is working class. Did they eat better in the trenches than they did at home? I think that's, you know, that's, I th that would be a key part of my argument. The general feeling from people like Corelli Barnett onwards was, you know, look at the calories, the men ate better here than they certainly did in the slums um, of Salford, for example, where you know Robert Roberts in the classic slum says that the recruiting officers went round Salford shouting meat every day. You know that was their call to the hungry working classes. Um, you know, and, and as late as um, Adrian Gregory's really fantastic book on the you know, last great war, but you know he says that well, it seems that in the main, given that there are more calories, things must have been um, better for them. But that's not. You know, this again, this, this assumes that all people want is calories, um, and that just isn't the case. You know, food is a much more complicated um, uh, matter than that. It comes freighted with all sorts of emotional responses, as I said earlier, and calories alone are, are not going to satisfy it. And frankly, if it were the case, you know, that the diet was so attractive and the working classes were so hungry, and it rather begs the question why the army had vacancies in 1913, doesn't it? And, you know, the years before the war, when the diet was pretty much the same in those last few years anyway. So I think um, it's very difficult to say whether... It depends what you mean by better, doesn't it? You know, more calories generally were on offer, but not necessarily in a form that um, the working classes wanted to take. And one of the issues was that, you know, the working class diet at this time is very low in fat. You know, most working class people in Britain, bread was everything. You know, it was bread, bread, bread with a very small amount of meat. So when they come into the army and they're offered often very little bread, but a lot of tin meat, they're not necessarily thrilled about it because it's, you know, it's an alien diet to them. It's not what they're used to. And it's, you know, not necessarily as palatable. I mean, the British Army actually had to, you know, introduce a number of mobile bakeries in order to try and satisfy the men's desire for bread. But of course, you know, logistics come into it as well. And biscuit is a lot easier to store and transport um, than, you know, fresh bread. And I suppose just, just leading on to a, to a related question to that, what was the um, sort of collective psychological and morale value of food to the Tommy? Well, as I've, you know, it is a thing about expecting to be looked after. So you expected 
um, that men, you know, men expected to be fed properly as per their contract with the army. If you're in a frontline trench, you know, food is highly variable. And it also depends on the officers too, frankly, how conscientious the officers were. Um, you know, someone like Sidney Rogerson writes at great length that the wonderful stews that he made sure the, uh, the, uh, the cooks concocted for his men um, in their traveling cookers. But having said that, even those, you know, he lists the contents sort of rather wickedly of herrings and biscuit and tin meat all boiled up together because he doesn't eat it. But at least there's an, a recognition that hot food is hugely important to morale, particularly, you know, in the cold, wet days um, on the Western Front. So it is, you know, it, it is very important. But the other issue, of course, if you're in a frontline trench is if bacon suddenly appears at breakfast, you know, just before dawn, you get a very bad feeling as to why bacon has appeared at breakfast because it was often a sign that a push was coming um, and there was a recognition that, you know, some hot bacon with the bread and a shot of rum would be the way to initiate the men's, you know, charge forward. So men often comment that, mm, you know, we we kind of, we we saw the breakfast and we're, and we're pleased to have a good breakfast, but it made us realise what we were being fed up for, you know, and that was the, the disaster that might follow. Um, certainly something I found in my research into the London Regiment was that food was a major source of criminal activity in terms of that groups would work together to actually procure food, break rules, nick stuff yes. from farmers. Did you find that genuinely reflected in your research? Oh, very much so, yes, yes. yes. They, and fixers, people who are good at scroungers, scrounging, you know, were very popular because they, they, they were the men who made it happen. I think the list of things that men did to procure additional food, you know, is, is probably virtually endless. I mean, I've read of, you know, explosives being thrown into lakes to kill fish, I've read of, you know, rivers being dammed upstream to, you know, produce the fish, uh, drowning fish downstream. Um, you know, chickens, for example, were never plucked, were they? They were always skinned, turned inside out to avoid any, um, you know, evidence being left of the, of, of the crime, because obviously the chickens were stolen. The, on the front of my book, I actually use a pastel from uh, Singer Sergeant, which shows soldiers stealing apples, you know, in, in, in the orchard. So scrounging from the French farmers was pretty much part of every Tommy's um, experience. And, you know, the officers, when their complaints were made by French farmers, you know, the officers obviously had to try and balance you know, their, their duty to the, the, the locals, to their duty to their men. So they'd kind of palm the farmers off and turn to the men afterwards and say, you know, can you not do it after dark? That's what uh, J.C. Dunn certainly recommended to his troops, so to try and avoid them being caught. I mean, it's not all stealing, is it? I mean, you know, there are lots of opportunities or certain opportunities for soldiers to buy additional food, you know, enterprising French farmers who weren't able to farm their land, obviously, in the way, you know, profit from that as they had in the past, set up a stamina in their kitchen. So... You know, you read some wonderful stories about soldiers buying egg and chips. I think one soldier, you know, managed to consume eight eggs in a day. So goodness knows what that did to his digestive system. But, 
you know, there are places, I mean, it's more limited, obviously, buying food. If you're an officer, you've generally got access to transport, whether that's, you know, your own horse or military, you know, transport car or what have you. So you can get to Amiens or wherever and, and, and eat at the restaurants there. But that's not possible for generally for the rank and file. But the local French people were very good at servicing, you know, the, the soldiers' needs, certainly in terms of egg and chips. They didn't seem too interested in, you know, any other, um, well... I was going to say any other French food. It's not French food, but the British, the British working class diet was renowned for its restrictiveness. You know, um, Voltaire commented, didn't he, about the British having about 42 religions but only two sources. So you know, the British soldier is not ambitious in his food tastes. He he wants the, you know, the comfort of of good old egg and chips. Did the quality of the food improve during the war? I think that's a really interesting point, and it wasn't something, to be honest, that I've considered in my research quite so specifically. I think at the beginning of the war, there are huge problems in logistics, um, and that's because, you know, several reasons, you know, not least the kind of collapse um, uh, 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 as the war starts. But once the war becomes entrenched and uh, relatively static, you know, logistics are not a problem for the British Army in general. They set up very complicated systems of supply from base supply depot on the coast, you know, with trains to regulating stations, with, you know, lorries, then horses, then, you know, men carrying it on their backs or in carts to the front line. So this is all set up quite well. I think the issue is that in a worldwide sense, you know, there are problems with food supply as the war progresses. And of course, you know, German experience is, is um, you know, t- tells that story more clearly than the British. But, you know, rationing is introduced in the British home front on, in 1918. So food becomes increasingly short at home because the effort is, is to try and preserve that food uh, for fighting soldiers. But, of course, one of the issues is, is that, you know, people at home write to the soldiers and, and say they're hungry or soldiers come back from leave and talk about the queues, and soldiers then become a bit angry about food, that, you know, that they're fighting in the trenches for a country that can't even provide sufficient food for the wife and children at home. I, I, in my, from what I've seen, I wouldn't say it gets better. I'd say the army gets more organised, you know, it starts to know how to fill gaps, for example. It has gardens in France growing vegetables to try and supplement, you know, the, the things that aren't getting, um, they're not getting in sufficient supply. There's a very bad harvest in 16 to 17, which affects um, potatoes in particular, potato output or yields. So, you know, there are kind of general food issues um, which do have some impact on the soldiers' diet in terms of the lack of variety. But the government and the war office is always very clear that, you know, the fighting soldier needs to be top of the, you know, the food chain. So all, you know, best supplies that are safe for them. And finally, Rachel, where can people learn more about your research? Well, I would strongly recommend they buy my book from Manchester University Press, which is now available in paperback. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the main source. I've written, uh, you know, several journal articles, lots of pieces all over the place, really, uh, different blogs, HRC blogs, uh, Arts and Humanities Research Council, who's been a first researcher for the last six years, is on the commemoration project. Um, I have several pieces on their blog, which is widely accessible. So, so yes, it is out there. Rachel, it's been a privilege. Thank you very much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you, Tom. 
You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>